Jag är här nu på Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Welcome to the 357th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we continue with South with Scott by Edward Evans, who was part of Scott's fabled and fatal journey south. And then we start a new reading of Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Let's head to that white continent. Chapter 7. Arrangements for the Winter. Less than a fortnight from the day of our return to Cape Evans, on April the 23rd to be exact, the sun left us to remain below the horizon for four long, weary months. Of course, there was a considerable amount of twilight, and even on midwinter's day at noon there was some grey light in the north. Different people took the winter in different fashion, according to their temperaments. There were some who never could have faced a second winter with any degree of cheerfulness. But taking it all round, we did well enough and when the summer came again our concrete keenness and zeal had not one whit abated. That is especially true in the case of those who were chosen to make the great journey southward, even though it was obvious that certain members could only accompany their leader for a mere fraction of the great white way. During the four months of winter darkness, each one occupied himself with his special subject, and Dr. Wilson not only proved himself to be an efficient chief of our scientific staff, but a sound friend and a companion to the executive members, Bowers, Oates, Mears and myself. Uncle Bill was our Solomon, and it was to him that we all went for sympathy and practical advice. It was to him the staff went, that is to say the officers and scientists, for the smoothing over of those little difficulties, roughnesses and unevenness that were bound to arrive from time to time during the course of winter. The sailors came more to Bowers, Oates and myself, for in their conservative naval way, they could never quite get over the fact that the hut was not a ship, and that there were other members who, although they had never come under any sort of naval or military discipline, were men of greater age and experience in fending for themselves than youngsters like Bowers and myself. Still, things went beautifully, and so they should have, when one considers the great care our leader had exercised in the selection of his personnel. If Scott had had his choice again, and if he had been allowed to select from the whole world, one can say without hesitation he would have chosen Wilson to captain our splendid scientific team and to be his human book of reference. Wilson was more nearly Scott's own age than the other important members of this enterprise, and Wilson, it must be remembered, had pulled shoulder to shoulder with Scott on his southern sledge journey in 1902-1903. Before taking a peep at the individuals forming the rest of our party, and at their delicate scientific work at the base station. I must not forget to mention that Scott, with his indomitable energy, was away five or four days after his return to Cape Evans with Bowers, Crean and five fresh men, to Hut Point for the dual purpose of replenishing that station with fuel, lighting material, etc., and getting those who should be at Cape Evans for certain work and duty back there. Scott returned by the way we had come, i.e. the glacier Tongue Castle Rock route, and then left the dog-boy with Mears to take charge of these animals, Lashley and Keohane to nurse and exercise the two ponies, and Nelson and Ford to get into the way of winter roughing it, besides which he left day over at Hut Point, where his clever fingers found plenty to do to ameliorate the condition of those living there. 
Day had learnt much under Shackleton in these parts, and by some of us he was nicknamed Handy Andy. Mears was now appointed Governor of Hut Point. As a matter of fact, he and his dogs were better off here than at Cape Evans, because the dogs could use the big sheltered verandas already mentioned, whereas they had no such shelter at Cape Evans. Scott was back in the hut by April 21st, having left Mears definite orders that James Pig and Punch the ponies were not to leave Hut Point for Cape Evans until the entire journey could be made over the sea ice under conditions of absolute safety. This meant a wait of three weeks to a month before everything suited, and the governor of Hut Point did not come in until the 13th of May, when he arrived in pomp and splendour with all the dogs and two ponies fit and well. His party, black with soot and blubber, their windproof clothing smelly and greasy, and a dirty but robust and cheerful gang. A glance at the accompanying plan shows whereabout we worked. Starting at the left-hand top corner, we find Simpson's laboratory, and we usually found Simpson at work in it, always at work, except when he was engaged in scientific argument, or when, just after lunch, he stretched himself out on his bunk at the end of a large cigar. Simpson was no novice to work in the frigid zones, for he had already wintered within the Arctic Circle in northern Norway. Weather did not worry him much, nor apparently did temperatures, for since his investigations amidst the snows of the Viking's land, Simpson had worked extensively in India. His enduring good humour and his smiling manner earned for him the sobriquet of Sunny Jim. In the first year, the self-registering instruments that found themselves in Simpson's corner or in the small hut which contained his magnetic observatory, gave us an admirable record of temperatures, barometric pressures, wind force and direction, atmospheric electricity, sunshine, when the sun did shine, and the elements of terrestrial magnetism. Thanks to Simpson, we also had investigations of the upper air currents, aurora observations, atmospheric optics, gravity, determination and, what is more, some fine practical teaching that enabled the various sledging units properly to observe and collect data of meteorological importance. Simpson's place was essentially at the base station, and his consequent work as physicist and meteorologist prevented him from taking an active part in our sledge journeys. When he was recalled to Simla in 1912, his work was ably continued by Wright, our Canadian chemist, who, as I have said elsewhere, accompanied us south to make a special study of ice structure and glaciation. Wright lived in the bunk above Simpson's, and when not devoting his energy and magnificent physique to sledging and fieldwork, he gave himself up to the study of ice physics, a somewhat new scientific line of research. Wright was originally introduced to the expedition by Griffith Taylor, and Scott, advised by Wilson, was so keen on the inclusion of this young Canadian chemist in our scientific staff that really the study of ice structure and glaciation was made for Wright and his science coined for him. He photographed ice flowers formed in the sea. He found out how long ice took to freeze down our way, cast aspersions on the bearing capabilities of our beloved sea ice, and generally brought his intelligence to bear in a way that commanded the approbation of Wilson and our chief. Wright was one of the strongest members of our expedition, and he had the most powerful flow of language. He made some beautiful photographs of ice crystals and surprised the simple sailor like myself with his ability as a navigator and an astronomer. Moving along from Wright and Simpson, we come to Nelson and Day. 
Teddy Nelson, our marine biologist, did both winters at Cape Evans, and he not only carried out biological work but studied the tides. His corner was pleasant to look upon, with its orderly row of enamelled and china trays and dishes. During the winter months, holes were made in the sea ice through which were lowered toe-nets for collecting drifting organisms and so on. Special thermometers of German make were lowered by Nelson through the ice holes to get the sea temperatures, and likewise reversing water bottles were employed to obtain samples of seawater daily. Day, the motor engineer, was responsible for lighting by acetylene. He was wonderfully clever as a mechanic and also a good carpenter. He took charge of our petrol, paraffin and spirit store, and was never idle for a minute. Moving along to the right, we came to the last cubicle, where the rubbly updugs lived. These were Tygrave Gran, Griffith Taylor and Frank Debenham, all libel actions in connection with the updugs. I am prepared to settle out of port in the long bar at Shanghai. Quoting from the South Polar Times, the updug burrow is festooned with Kodaks, candles and curtains. They, the updugs, are united in an intense love of the science of autobiography. Their somewhat ambiguous motto is, the pen is mightier than the sword, but the tongue licks them both. Griffith, Taylor and Debenham were both Australians. The former was probably the wittiest man in the expedition, and in my opinion, the cleverest contributor to the South Polar Times. Excepting, of course, the artistic side. The South Polar Times was our winter magazine, beautifully illustrated by Wilson's watercolours and Ponting's photographs. Taylor's motto was, Advance Australia. Most certainly he helped to do it. People were always welcome in the Upduggery, where they seemed to have an unlimited supply of cigarettes and good novels. Debenham was certainly nurse to the Updugs. That is to say, he was the least untidy. But then, of course, he was the smallest. In this cubicle, the most voluminous of diaries were kept and at least two books have been published therefrom. Gran kept his diary mostly in Norwegian, but there were many words coined in our expedition which had no Scandinavian equivalent, and Gran failed to translate them, in spite of his having more imagination than any one amongst us. Crossing over the hut to the cubicle opposite, one arrives at the somewhat congested space in which Cherry Garrard was housed with bowers above him, in their corner were stores lists, books, and mystery bags which contained material for the South Polar Times. Toys also, and frivolous presents to liven us up at the midwinter and other festivities. Bowers and Cherry Garrard were, in a way, worse off than the others, for they had the darkest part of the hut, yet in this gloomy tenement all kinds of calculations were made and much other good work was done. Oates came next with his bunk more free of debris than everybody else's, for he was the horseman, pure and simple, and his duties freed him from that superabundance of books, instruments, stationery, specimens, charts, and what not with which the others had surrounded ourselves. Any spare gear he kept in the saddle room, a specially cleared space in the stables where he was assisted by the little Russian groom Anton, who soon became devoted to his hard-working and capable master. The two men, so unlike in appearance and character, etc., were such miles apart in social standing and nationality, but worked shoulder to shoulder in the stables throughout the long winter night. By the dim candlelight which illuminated our pony shelter, one could see Oates grooming his charges, clearing up their stall, refitting their harness and fixing up little improvements that his quick watchful eye continually suggested. 
At the far end of his stables he had a blubber stove, where he used to melt ice for the pony's drinking water and cook bran mashes for his animals. Here he would often sit and help Mears make dog pemmican out of seal meat. They made about eight hundredweights of this sustaining preparation. Moving along from Chateau Oaks, Mears and Atkinson's two bunks came next. Mears above and Atkinson was below. These two sleeping berths, likewise, were not conspicuous by any superfluity of scientific oddments, for Mears' work took him outside of the hut as a rule, unless he was engaged in making dog harness. Mears and Oates were the greatest of friends, and these two, Atkinson, Cherrygrad and Bowers, were, if I remember rightly, known collectively as the Bundelog, although numerically superior to their vis-a-vis the Ubdogs, and always ready to revile them. The Ubdogs kept their end up and usually came out victorious in discussions or in bandinage. Finally, the Holy of Holies, where Captain Scott and the library occupied one end and Uncle Bill and myself the far corner with the ceaselessly ticking chronometers and many sledging watches. There was an air of sanctity about this part. All the plotting was done here. Charts were made and astronomical observations worked out. Wilson worked up his sketches at the plotting table, interviewed the staff here, and above his bunk kept a third of the shore party's library. We had two comfortable trestle beds up our end, and our leader also had a bed in preference to the built-up bunk adopted by most of the afterguard as was the Mayfair district. Wilson and I lived in Park Lane in those days, whilst Captain Scott occupied Grosvenor Street. He had his own little table covered with Tony green linoleum, and also had a multiplicity of little shelves on which to keep his pipes, tobacco, cigars and other household gods. It was well illuminated in this part, and although hung around with fur mitts, fur boots, socks, hats and woollen clothing, there was something very chaste about this very respectable corner. For the rest of it, we had our Arctic library, and the spare spaces on our matchboard bulkhead, which fenced it on three sides, were decorated with photographs. In place of Eiderdown, Scott's old uniform overcoat usually covered his bed, whilst peeping out from under his sleeping place one could espy an emblem of civilization and prosperity in the shape of a very good suitcase. The foregoing illustrates sufficiently the grouping of the afterguard, and if one adds the anthracite stove, a 12-foot by 4-foot table, a pianola, a gramophone, and a score of chairs, with a small shelf-like table squeezed in between the darkroom and Simpson's corner, one completes the picture of the officers' quarters in the Cape Evans hut. A bulkhead of biscuit cases and so on divided us from the men's accommodation. They were very well off, each seaman having a trestle bed similar to Captain Scott, unless he preferred to build a bunk for himself, as one or two did. They had a table six foot by four, and the cook had a kitchen table four foot square, and certainly no crew space was ever provided on a polar expedition that gave such comfortable and cosy housing room. And now, it's dreaming time. The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath by H.P. Lovecraft Three times Randolph Carter dreamed of the marvellous city, and three times was he snatched away while he still paused on the high terrace above it. All golden and lovely it blazed in the sunset, with walls, temples, colonnades and arched bridges of veined marble, silver-basined fountains of prismatic spray in broad squares, and perfumed gardens, 
and wide streets marching between delicate trees and blossom-laden urns, and ivory towers in gleaming rows. While on the steep northward slopes climbed tiers of red roofs and old peaked gables harbouring little lanes of grassy cobbles. It was a fever of the gods, a fanfare of supernal trumpets, and a clash of immortal cymbals. Mystery hung about it as clouds about a fabulous unvisited mountain, and as Carter stood breathless and expectant on that balustraded parapet, there swept up to him the poignancy and suspense of almost vanished memory, the pain of lost things, and the maddening need to place again what once had been an awesome and momentous place. He knew that for him its meaning must once have been supreme, though in what cycle or incarnation he had known it, or whether in dream or in waking, he could not tell. Vaguely it called up glimpses of a far-forgotten first youth, when wonder and pleasure lay in all the mystery of days, and dawn and dusk alike strode forth prophetic to the eager sound of lutes and songs, unclosing fiery gates towards further and surprising marvels. But each night, as he stood on that high marble terrace, with the curious urns and cavern rail, and looked off over that hushed sunset city of beauty and unearthly imminence, he felt the bondage of dreams' tyrannous gods. For in no wise could he leave that lofty spot, or descend the wide marmorial flights flung endlessly down to where those streets of elder witchery lay outspread and beckoning. When for the third time he awakened, with those flights still undescended, and those hushed sunset streets still untraversed, he prayed long and earnestly to the hidden gods of dream, that brood capricious and above the clouds of unknown Kadath, in the cold waste where no man treads. But the gods made no answer, and shrewded, no relenting, nor did they give any favouring sign when he prayed to them in dream, and invoked them sacrificially through the bearded priests of Nacht and Kam Thar, whose cavern temple with its pillar of flame lies not far from the gates of the waking world. It seemed, however, that his prayers must have been adversely heard. For after even the first of them, he ceased wholly to behold that marvellous city, as if his three glimpses from afar had been mere accidents or oversights, and against some hidden plan or wish of the gods. At length, sick with longing for those glittering sunset streets and cryptical hill lanes amongst the ancient tiled roofs, nor able sleeping or waking to drive them from his mind, Carter resolved to go with bold entreaty whither no man had gone before, and dare the icy deserts through the dark to where unknown Kadath, veiled in cloud and crowned with unimagined stars, holds secret and nocturnal the onyx castle of the Great Ones. In light slumber he descended the seventy steps to the cavern of flame, and talked of this design to the bearded priests of Nasht and Kamanthar and the priests shook their shent-bearing heads, and vowed it would be the death of his soul. They pointed out that the Great Ones had shown already their wish, and that it is not agreeable to them to be harassed by insistent pleas. They reminded him, too, that not only had no man ever been to Kadath, but no man had ever suspected in what part of space it may lie, whether it be in the dreamlands around our world or in those surrounding some unguessed companion of Formalhort or Aldebaran. 
if in our dreamland it might conceivably be reached. But only three human souls since time began had ever crossed and recrossed the black, impious gulfs to other dreamlands, and of that three, two had come back quite mad. There were, in such voyages, incalculable local dangers, as well as that shocking final peril which gibbers unmentionably outside the ordered universe, where no dreams reach. That last amorphous blight of nethermost confusion which blasphemes and bubbles at the centre of all infinity. The boundless daemon, Sultan, Azathoth, whose name no lips dare speak aloud, but who gnaws hungrily in inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time amidst the muffled, maddening beating of vile drums and the thin, monotonous whine of accursed flutes, to which detestable pounding and piping dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly the gigantic ultimate gods, the blind, the voiceless, tenebrous, mindless other gods, whose soul and messenger is the crawling chaos of Nyarlathotep. Of these things was Carter warned by the priests of Nasht and Kamanthar in the Cavern of Flame. But still he resolved to find the gods on unknown Kadath in the cold waste, wherever that might be, and to win from them the sight and remembrance and shelter of that marvellous sunset city. He knew that this journey of his would be strange and long, and that the great ones would be against it, but being old in the land of dream, he counted on many useful memories and devices to aid him. So, asking a formal blessing of the priests, and thinking shrewdly on his course, he boldly descended the seven hundred steps to the gate of the deeper slumber, and set out through the enchanted wood. In the tunnels of that twisted wood, whose low prodigious oaks twine groping boughs and shine dim with phosphorescence of strange fungi, dwell the furtive and secretive Zoogs, who know many obscure secrets of the dream world, and a few of the waking world, since the wood at two places touches the lands of men, though it would be disastrous to say where. Certain unexplained rumours, events, and vanishments occur amongst men where the Zoogs have access, and it is well that they cannot travel far outside the world of dreams but over the nearer parts of the dream world they pass freely, flitting small and brown and unseen, and bearing black piquant tails to beguile the hours around their hearths in the forest they love. Most of them live in burrows, but some inhabit the trunks of the great trees, and although they live mostly on fungi, it is muttered that they have also a slight taste for meat, either physical or spiritual for certainly many dreamers have entered that wood who have not come out. Carter, however, had no fear, for he was an old dreamer and had learnt their fluttering language and made many a treaty with them. Having found, through their help, the splendid city of Selephaeus in Uthnagai, beyond the Tanarayan hills, where reigns half the year the great King Kurains, a man he had known by another name in life, Kurains was the one soul who had been to the star gulls and returned free from madness. Threading now the low phosphorescent aisles between those gigantic trunks, Carter made fluttering sounds in the manner of the Zoogs and listened now and then for responses. He remembered one particular village of the creatures was in the centre of the wood, 
where a circle of great mossy stones in what had once been a clearing tells of older and more terrible dwellers long forgotten. And towards this spot he hastened. He traced his way by the grotesque fungi, which always seems better nourished as one approaches the dread circle where elder beings danced and sacrificed. Finally, the great light of those thicker fungi revealed a sinister green and grey vastness, pushing up through the roof of the forest and out of sight. This was the nearest of the great rings of stones, and Carter knew that he was close to the Zug village. Renewing his fluttering sound, he waited patiently, and at last was rewarded by an impression of many eyes watching him. It was the Zoogs, for one sees their weird eyes long before one can discern their small slippery brown outlines. Out they swarmed from hidden burrow and honeycombed tree, till the whole dim-litten region was alive with them. Some of the wilder ones brushed Carter unpleasantly, and one even nipped loathsomely at his ear. But these lawless spirits were soon restrained by their elders. The council of sages, recognising the visitor, offered a good fermented sap from a haunted tree unlike the others, which had grown from a seed dropped down by someone on the moon. And as Carter drank it ceremoniously, a very strange colloquy began. The Zoogs did not, unfortunately, know where the peak of Kadath lies, nor could they even say whether the old cold waste is in our dream world or in another. Rumours of the Great Ones came equally from all points, and one might only say that they were likelier to be seen on high mountain peaks than in valleys, since on such peaks they dance reminiscently when the moon is above and the clouds beneath. Then one very ancient Zug recalled a thing unheard of by the others, and said that in Ulthar, beyond the river sky, there still lingered the last copy of those inconceivable old noptic manuscripts made by waking men in forgotten boreal kingdoms, and born into the land of dreams when the hairy cannibal Nophex overcame many templed Olatho, and slew all the heroes of the land of Lomar. Those manuscripts, he said, told much of the gods, and besides, in Ulthar, there were men who had seen the signs of the gods, and even one old priest who had scaled a great mountain to behold them dancing by moonlight. He had failed, though his companion had succeeded and perished namelessly. Sir so Randolph Carter thanked the Zooks, who fluttered amicably and gave him another gourd of moon-tree wine to take with him, and set out through the phosphorescent wood for the other side where the rushing sky flows down from the slopes of Lerion, and Hathig and Nur and Ulthar dot the plain. Behind him, furtive and unseen, crept several of the curious Zoogs, for they wished to learn what might befall him, and bear back the legend to their people. The vast oaks grew thicker as he pushed on beyond the village, and he looked sharply for a certain spot where they would thin somewhat, standing quite dead or dying amongst the unnaturally dense fungi and the rotting mould and mushy logs of their fallen brothers. There he would turn sharply aside, for at that spot a mighty slab of stone rests on the forest floor, and those who have dared approach it say that it bears an iron ring three feet wide. Remembering the archaic circle of great mossy rocks and what it was possibly set up for, 
the zoos do not pause near that expansive slab with its huge ring, for they realise that all which is forgotten need not necessarily be dead, and they would not like to see the slab rise slowly and deliberately. Carter detoured at the proper place, and heard behind him the frightened fluttering of some of the more timid zooks. He'd known they would follow him, so he was not disturbed, for one grows accustomed to the anomalies of these prying creatures. It was twilight when he came to the edge of the wood, and the strengthening glow told him it was the twilight of morning. Over fertile plains rolling down to the sky he saw the smoke and cottage chimneys, and on every hand were the hedges and ploughed fields and thatched roofs of a peaceful land. Once he stopped at a farmhouse well for a cup of water, and all the dogs barked affrightedly at the inconspicuous zoogs that crept through the grass behind. At another house where people were stirring, he asked questions about the gods, and whether they danced often upon Lerian. But the farmer and his wife would make only the elder sign and tell him the way to near an Ertha. At noon he walked through the one broad street of Nair, which he had once visited and which marked his furthest former travels in this direction, and soon afterward he came to the great stone bridge across the sky, into whose central piece the masons had sealed a living human sacrifice when they built it thirteen hundred years before. Once on the other side, the frequent presence of cats who all arched their backs at the trailing zoogs revealed the near neighbourhood of Ulthar, for in Ulthar, according to an ancient and significant law, no man may kill a cat. Very pleasant were the suburbs of Ulthar, with their little green cottages and neatly fenced farms, and still pleasanter was the quaint town itself, with its peaked roofs and overhanging upper stories and numberless chimney-pots and narrow hill streets where one can see old cobbles whenever the graceful cats afford space enough. Carter, the cats being somewhat dispersed by the half-seen zoogs, picked his way directly to the modest temple of the elder ones, where the priests and old records were said to be. And once within that venerable circular tower of ivied stone which crowns Ulthar's highest hill, he sought out the patriarch Atal, who had been up the forbidden peak Hathek Kia in the stony desert, and had come down again alive. Atal, seated on an ivory dais in a festoon shrine at the top of the temple, was fully three centuries old, but still very keen of mind and memory. From him Carter learned many things about the gods, but mainly that they are indeed only Earth's gods, ruling feebly our own dreamland and having no power or habitation elsewhere. They might, Atal said, hear a man's prayer if in good humour, but one must not think of climbing their onyx stronghold atop Kadath in the cold waste. It was lucky that no man knew where Kadath towers, for the fruits of ascending it would be very grave. Atal's companion, Bani the Wise, had been drawn screaming into the sky for climbing merely to the known peak of Hathek Kia. With unknown Kadath, if ever found, matters would be much worse. For although Earth's gods may sometimes be surpassed by a wise mortal, they are protected by the other gods from outside, whom it is better not to discuss. At least twice in the world's history, the other gods set their seal upon Earth's primal granite, 
once in antediluvian times, as guessed from a drawing in those parts of the Noptic manuscripts too ancient to be read, and once on Hathek Kia, when Barzai the wise tried to see Earth's gods dancing by moonlight. So, Atal said, it would be much better to let all gods alone, except in tactful prayers. Carter, though disappointed by Atal's discouraging advice, and by the meagre help to be found in the Noptic manuscripts and the seven cryptical books of Hassan, he did not wholly despair. First, he questioned the old priest about the marvellous sunset city seen from the railed terrace, thinking that perhaps he might find it without the god's aid. But Atal could tell him nothing. Probably, Atal said, the place belonged to his especial dream world, and not to the general land of vision that many know, and conceivably it might be on another planet. In that case, Earth's gods could not guide him if they would. But this was not likely since the stopping of the dreams showed pretty clearly that it was something the Great Ones wished to hide from him. Then Carter did a wicked thing. Offering his guileless host so many draughts of the moon wine which the Zooks had given him that the old man became irresponsibly talkative. Robbed of his reserve, poor Atal babbled freely of forbidden things, telling him of a great image reported by travellers as carved on the solid rock of the mountain Granik on the Isle of Orab, in the Southern Sea, and hinting that it may be a likeness which Earth's gods once wrought of their own features in the days when they danced by moonlight on that mountain. And he hiccoughed, likewise, that the features of that image are very strange, so that one might easily recognise them, and that they are sure signs of the authentic race of the gods. Now the use of all this in finding the gods became at once apparent to Carter. It is known that in disguise the younger amongst the great ones often espouse the daughters of men, so that around the borders of the cold waste wherein stands Kadath, the peasants must all bear their blood. This being so, the way to find that waste must be to see the stone face on Granik and mark the features. Then, having noted them with care, to search for such features amongst living men, where they are plainest and thickest, there must be the gods dwell nearest. And whatever stony waste lies back of the villages in that place must be that wherein stands Kadath. And that's all for today. Except to remind you of my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a naval history of the War of 1812, also Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, and the first volume of The Pentagon Papers, which reveals the dark underbelly of the US's decision-making on the war in Vietnam. As a bit of a side job, I'm also narrating the full rules to the role-playing game called Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game. Please, Go to patreon.com and search for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Until next time.